Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 987. On this week's show, we begin with David Lorla welcoming Caitlin McGrath, staff writer at The Athletic, who covers the Toronto Blue Jays. David and Caitlin actually begin by discussing what is going on with the impressive Baltimore Orioles before diving into how the Blue Jays have been underachieving a bit. We hear about Jose Barrios' inconsistent season, comparing the excellent campaigns of Kevin Gosman and Alec Manoa, and the interesting acquisitions of Whit Merrifield and Jackie Bradley Jr. David and Caitlin also discuss how fans feel about Toronto's mild trade deadline activity in the middle of a playoff race, and how it was a bit more practical than thrilling. I understand why fans were a little bit underwhelmed because it's like you're getting like a Mitch White who on paper and you look at what he'll bring to the Blue Jays many years of team control and he's that swing man. He can take over for Ross Stripling if Ross Stripling leaves in the offseason. And so the way that I looked at the Blue Jays trade deadline, it was just so practical and pragmatic. And that doesn't really get fans as excited as a big splashy move. So after that, Ben Clemens is joined by Dan Zimborski for some of their patented baseball-related banter, including checking in on how both central divisions are looking after the trade deadline. The White Sox recently lost Tim Anderson at the worst time, seeing as they have plenty of other problems already, while the St. Louis Cardinals are surging after they made an interesting swap with the Yankees. Ben and Dan talk about Harrison Bader and his defensive hardware, how Milwaukee was too passive, how Chris Sale hurt himself riding his bike, and how Dan has had his own share of embarrassing injuries. The duo also discussed Jed Lowry being DFA'd and how the Rockies actually did something encouraging in picking up Denelson Lamette and his impressive slider. He's not just the guy who was gripping it and ripping it and he happened to find one grip that worked and nothing else did. He's clearly capable of manipulating the pitch differently. Yeah, it's not just two sliders. It's almost, as I described, he almost has like a dimmer switch that he could do like anything in between. Yeah, he's like, he just has really good like ability to manipulate the way that he I guess puts finger pressure on the ball on that pitch. It's unclear to me exactly how much of it is like finger pressure, how much of it is his wrist snap, but he clearly can change it. And it looks like he can change it, not at will, but like he's exerting his own influence on it. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder to mosey on over and check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place to pick up your official Fangraphs merch and swag, but you can pick up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or for a friend. It is the best way to both browse the site and to support the site simultaneously, helping us keep doing everything we do. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Caitlin McGrath. Caitlin covers the Toronto Blue Jays for The Athletic. Caitlin, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Of course. Thank you for having me. We are fairly obviously going to talk a lot of Toronto Blue Jays, but we should actually start with the team that the Blue Jays are playing as we speak. This is, we are talking on Wednesday. What on earth is going on with the Baltimore Orioles? Yeah, it's a wild story. I was talking to and and sort of reading some things by my colleague, Dan Connolly, who's covered the Orioles for a long time, covers the Orioles right now for The Athletic. And I think he's surprised by it. He expected the Orioles to be in a season where they were losing 100 games again. And I think a lot of people thought perhaps they'd take somewhat of a step forward um, from last year. But I don't think that people expected them to take this much of a step forward. But they're a really scrappy kind of underdog team that is embracing that mentality. And their lineup 
can always hit. In fact, last year, I remember they had a pretty decent lineup, like that guys that could hit the ball. They have a few guys that can hit home runs. Mountcastle consistently torments the Blue Jays. He just, for whatever reason, turns into like Juan Soto against the Blue Jays. And their bullpen has been really their strength, I think. And it just shows you what a team can do with a strong bullpen. I mean, they're starting pitching hasn't been great, but if they can hit and get out to somewhat of a lead, then their bullpen can just come in and close the door. And that's what they've been able to do against the Blue Jays, who have played pretty competitive games these last two days, but the bullpen has been a a factor and it's really the difference between these two teams. And the uh, Baltimore Orioles, I think, are unquestionably the biggest pleasant surprise in baseball. Have the Toronto Blue Jays underachieved? I mean, I think so in the sense that they've had a season where things haven't gone completely right. You look at a couple weeks ago and they were firing their manager. Usually teams don't fire their manager if things are going well. At that time, Ross Atkins, the GM, came out and said that they were not happy. They were not pleased with their performance. They know they can be better. And there has been improved play since John Schneider took over. And overall, in the last couple weeks, they have had a much better record. Some of those games came against teams that were weaker opponents. But honestly, that's what good teams do. And that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to beat up on teams that aren't as good as you and then play competitive games against the teams that are as good. And so the Blue Jays have been doing that for the most part. But yeah, I think that they've been underwhelming a little bit because they came into the season with such high expectations. I think to some extent, the Yankees hot start has blurred the Blue Jays picture a little bit in the sense that it's probably made it look slightly worse than it is because the lead in the division is so big. But the Yankees have come down to earth a little bit lately as well. So the Blue Jays are still in a good spot. And I think things could always have been worse for them in the sense that Even when they were at their kind of low point, when they were firing the manager, they were still above 500 and they were still in a playoff spot. And they've pretty much been in a playoff spot for the entirety of the season. So on the one hand, you could say, sure, they're not running away with the division. Sure, they're not leading the division, all these types of things. They have also been still remaining in that playoff picture. So they haven't completely fallen over on their face or anything like that. So that's probably the glass half full point of view on these teams. But I think certainly fans are disappointed. I think even the team would say that they wish they were in a better spot. They know they can play better, all these types of things. But the thing with this Blue Jays team is what really, really matters to them is getting into the postseason. So they lived a hard lesson last year, I guess you could call it missing the playoffs or missing the chance to play in that playing game and and have a chance to get into the postseason by one game, uh, by one win. So they have had that fueling them this whole season. And so the eyes are on the postseason. And to some extent, this team wants to be in a good position when they get into the postseason. They would obviously love to win the division, even though I don't think that's really in the realm of possibility anymore or realistic possibility. An alternative to that, they would like to get the first wild card spot. But really, this team just wants a chance to get into the postseason. And we've seen them be fairly kind of hot and cold, inconsistent this year. And so I'm kind of waiting and seeing, can this team go on somewhat of an extended run especially down the stretch, to start playing their best baseball 
at the right time. And if they're able to do that, they certainly have the talent to make some noise in the postseason, especially with their lineup. But the whole season, it's been a little bit stop and start, a little bit inconsistent, a little bit hitting's hitting, but the pitching's not pitching and vice versa. So that's sort of been the story of the year. It's why it's been more underwhelming than we thought it would be. But again, they're still in a decent spot. Things could be worse. And we're talking about an underwhelming team that is still in fairly comfortable position in first place in the wildcard positions. And with the the talent in mind, uh, Caitlin, the Blue Jays did make moves at the trade deadline. Did they make enough moves or the right moves or even the moves that you expected them to make? They covered the things that I expected they would cover. I think that, again, looking at it from how the fans are viewing it, I totally understand why people said it was underwhelming. The Blue Jays, over the last couple of years, whether it be in the offseason or in the, at the trade deadline, they have made a splash, getting George Springer a couple off seasons ago, getting Kevin Gosman this last offseason, two guys that were at the top of the market in their respective positions. Last trade deadline, the Blue Jays got Jose Brios, who at the time was among the best starters on the market. All those players came and made an immediate impact. So this trade deadline, the Blue Jays didn't really land anyone who was that splashy big move. On the one hand, this was a trade deadline that outside of like Juan Soto, there wasn't a huge amount of like guys out there who were going to make that huge splash. Luis Casillo probably won and Frankie Montes to a lesser extent a little bit him as well. And You know, the Blue Jays were shopping in that high-end pitching market. Obviously, they didn't end up pulling the trigger on that. The Mariners get Casillo, and they paid a ton for him. And the Yankees got Montas, and then the Yankees kind of made a weird move then trading Montgomery. So I understand why fans were a little bit underwhelmed, because it's like you're getting like a Mitch White, who on paper, and you look at what he'll bring to the Blue Jays many years of team control and he's that swing man he can take over for Ross Stripling if Ross Stripling leaves in the offseason and so the way that I looked at the Blue Jays trade deadline it was just so practical and pragmatic and that doesn't really get fans as excited as a big splashy move so it was kind of a deadline where you thought the front office is maybe satisfied with themselves because they did some moves that will help them now and into the future and they didn't give up a lot and they got some guys that could raise the floor a little bit but you know I think that even looking at the bullpen you do wish and then when you're contrasting it with the bullpen like Baltimore's where it's like they've got all these guys that were waiver claims that were guys that maybe other teams had given up on and they all throw super hard and have sort of nasty breaking pitches and you look at the Blue Jays bullpen and they have guys that can get out but they don't have that same level of swing and miss that other bullpens have. So I think that I can understand where fans are coming from when they say they they wish the team did more. But at the end of the day, I think my takeaway from the trade deadline was obviously this front office is sort of like putting their chips in with the team they pretty much built before the season and saying, we believe in you guys or, you know, we're going to give you these complimentary pieces, but we've built a lineup that should be able to out hit most teams. We have a starting rotation that has two of the best in the American league right now. And another guy who should be better and maybe is starting to round the corner a little bit and a bullpen that has enough guys that can get out 
even if it's not in the traditional swing and miss way. And so the Blue Jays, as I say, like have the talent to make some noise. It's just about playing consistently. It's about kind of having all those elements of their roster clicking at the same time. And, you know, they probably need a bit of luck as all good teams do sometimes. But yeah, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. It's just been a weird season, honestly, to follow this team. Caitlin, you mentioned the two pitchers at the front of the rotation. In your mind, who is having the better season, Alec Manoa or Kevin Gosman? It's a tough call. I think from my point of view, I think you have to say Kevin Gosman. And I think it's because his season has been strange and that his numbers are really good, but they would be so much better if he wasn't getting so much tough batted ball luck. I mean, his BABIP is really high. I don't have it in front of me. Maybe you do, but... It's uh, kind of incredible how the numbers that he's putting up, given that he's been getting such tough luck on singles, finding holes, some shift beating type singles that have happened. A lot of just ground balls are going for singles against him. He's really not giving up much hard contact. He's really limiting home runs. He limits walks. He gets a lot of strikeouts. All these numbers are really, really good. And it's almost like maybe because his ERA and his ERA is below three, it's really good as well. So all these numbers look good. I'm not certain why he's not getting as much attention as his numbers suggest he he should, but he's been having an incredible season. He's had a couple's like mess starts, but overall he's looked really, really good for the Blue Jays. And I think he's been exactly what they wanted when they signed him to that big hundred plus million dollar deal. I think Alec Manoa obviously is having a really great season and why his is so special is this is his only second year in the majors and really his first full season in the major leagues. And it's been really impressive to watch him battle. I think the the thing that sticks out to me the most about Manoa, obviously the stuff is really good. He throws hard. He's got a great slider, especially when it's on. It can be really hard to, to time up. But the thing with Manoa is he's, he's been really competitive. He's put up a great record in terms of wins when he takes the mound for the Blue Jays. He has been really effective with runners in scoring position and runners on base. So those are things that stand out to me about him is just that he's really not looked like he's new at this, even though he's really still in his early years of his career. He just looks like such a veteran out there when he's pitching. He looks so confident and sure of himself. And he's really maneuvered around the league very well because you understand the more you pitch, the more guys know you. And his response always to that is that, well, I know hitters better as well. And so he's looked really good to me, just constantly making those adjustments, constantly competing out there, battling out there. And that's been really impressive to me. So yeah, at the top, the Blue Jays look really well poised for a three-game playoff in the wild card when you've got Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman to go between game and one and two. And then you have Jose Brios, who's been a bit of a wild card a little bit this year. But when he's on, he's been really effective for them. And so to some extent, it depends which Jose Brios shows up. He's been really good at home. And then for some reason, he's been not very effective on the road. I don't know if that's just a coincidence or what, but they still have put up a pretty decent record when he's been on the mound for them, but his stuff has been a bit inconsistent. His fastball command, his his he goes with his kind of curveball slider pitch, whatever you want to call it, slurve, sometimes he calls it. Sometimes it's on, sometimes it's not. And so he's he'll be pitching, uh, we're recording on Wednesday, so he's pitching 
tonight for the Blue Jays against the Orioles, and they really need him to be that good Brios tonight so that they can avoid a sweep at the hands of their division rival. Caitlin, you just brought up what my next question was going to be brought up. You just completely covered it with Burrios because <laughs> with him pitching this evening, the way that Blue Jays fans are looking at him when this airs on Friday could be very different. If he gets shelled, there might be a little bit of, oh my God, why didn't we get Montas or Castillo? But if he pitches like the good Burrios, it's, hey, we're in great shape. So Exactly. And, and that's why he's such an, a huge factor. I think a lot of attention has been on Kikuchi and his struggles in the Blue Jays rotation and certainly that warrants attention it's been very inconsistent but in terms of playoff picture Kikuchi might not factor in very much I don't even know that you would need to go to him uh, especially with the way that Ross Stripling has been pitching maybe I'm not maybe he certainly would be their fourth starter in a playoff scenario when you're going to a longer series and maybe they're using Kikuchi in a more creative way whether it's like a if they can get him figured out a little bit maybe he's like a short outing comes in behind someone pitches two innings if he can go you know six batters or or one time through one time through the order or something like that and if he's commanding and they can sort of get him figured out but in terms of his role in the starting rotation it matters down the stretch certainly but in terms of like long-term picture like Brios is kind of the key to the Blue Jays success the way that I look at it because it's like he's going to be the guy that you're going to have to turn to in a three-game series as good as Ross Stripling has been I think you kind of still want Brios up there because he can get more swing and miss he can get you know his stuff is just it ranks better um and so in a playoff scenario I think you'd want him pitching like a game three situation so I look at him as certainly like the x factor for their playoff success like that he has to kind of get going down the stretch you want him carrying momentum into October because he's really going to be key and even if you get into a scenario where let's say the Blue Jays get into a wild card situation and they do end up winning the first two games then he's your game one starter of the ALDS right like so he is a huge factor for them and the good thing is that he's had a good July or he had a good July I should say then against the twins he didn't look so good but hopefully you think that's just a one-off type of thing if he can get back on track but yeah the home road splits are a bit bit of a mystery maybe then you kind of maneuver it a little bit and like you feel good about him pitching at the Rogers Center in the playoffs but maybe less so on the road Let's jump back to acquisitions. The Blue Jays have actually made a move since the trade deadline in signing Jackie Bradley Jr. Why did they do that and what will it mean for the team? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that on the one hand, you look at the trouble or the injury trouble that George Springer is having right now in the sense that he's obviously on the IL with this elbow inflammation, soreness that he's been battling for basically two months now. And so Jackie Bradley Jr. offers some insurance there. They obviously got Whit Merrifield as well at the trade deadline, and he's been playing center field for the Blue Jays since he joined them. So the acquisition of Jackie Bradley Jr. is kind of curious to me in the sense that I wonder if this is somewhat of a tryout for him. Will it work out? Because they do have Bradley Zimmer. He offers a lot of speed and defensive stability, so he's been used a lot as a defensive replacement in late innings for the Blue Jays in center field, and he's been used as a pinch runner, but he really doesn't offer much 
at the plate for them and they really don't even give him opportunity. Like he's often, if he's subbed into the game, he's often subbed out before and at bat. They really, unless it's sort of a blowout situation. So Jackie Bradley Jr., while he hasn't hit much lately over his career, he offers a little bit more at the plate. I don't know that the Blue Jays signed him betting on that he'll be some sort of offensive spark for them. I don't think that's the case. I think it's mostly for his speed. We've even seen with John Schneider, I think with having more pieces on the bench, him getting more creative with how he's using his bench a little bit. Like there was a game against the Twins where they used every single guy available to them on the bench. And so having Jackie Bradley Jr. just gives John Schneider another guy to plug in whether it's a defensive replacement whether it's a pinch runner all these types of things that he can do he also brings some level of experience and been there done that obviously years with the Red Sox and playing in the postseason so we'll see what happens with that when George Springer is ready to come off the IL because I think presumably the Blue Jays will have to make some sort of roster decision are they going to carry that many outfielders they're going to have like a bench full of outfielders that can't hit I don't know so there might be a decision coming whether it's they're choosing between Zimmer Jackie Bradley Jr. sometimes I always think that's the case and then I end up being wrong and there's some other roster maneuver that they can make and they end up keeping them all so I try to like refrain from like speculating on what they're gonna do because I feel like every time I'm trying to guess like "Hmm, maybe they'll DFA this guy and it's always like some roundabout back move that I'm like oh okay I guess they could have done that and kept them all so uh we'll see we'll see but yeah I think Jackie Bradley Jr. just some of the tools that he offers is just a sort of another another like toy to play with so to speak for John Schneider they're having other options on his bench not knowing what to expect or even understanding things I think will come into the fore more often than than people might think for reporters because the Red Sox got rid of the best defensive outfielder they have had possibly in any of our lifetimes and they have nobody who can catch the ball in the outfield so <laughs> yes yeah you say you just don't know what to expect and on the subject of not knowing what to expect when the Blue Jays traded for Whit Merrifield it wasn't apparently a hundred percent certain that he was going to get vaccinated. And I'm thinking about that now because the Cleveland Guardians, who are tied for first place in the Central, are coming to Toronto on the evening that, you know, this pod goes up. One of their best relievers is not going to be traveling to Toronto. How has the Toronto media and fan base been reacting to the vaccination issue? Honestly, I think the Toronto media, we're kind of like a little bit tired of that storyline to some extent because it happens every series where a new team comes in and there's some guys that can't play and then some of the U.S. media go on about how the Blue Jays are at such an advantage because some teams can't send their whole team to Toronto and it's this huge factor and I think us in Toronto, we're just a little bit tired of that storyline and also because it doesn't completely capture the entire picture. On the one hand, yes, sometimes teams are not sending 100% of their team to Toronto. On the other hand, the Blue Jays have had to also ensure that everyone on their team is vaccinated. And that was an endeavor they had to take over the offseason, over spring training, making sure that every single player on their 40-man, if they wanted to be part of the team, were vaccinated. So that's something that Blue Jays had to take care of. It's something they had to be mindful of when they are acquiring players, trading for players, as you mentioned, trading away players, all these types of things they had to be mindful of. And so 
to some extent, it's it's shrunk the pool of players that they can that can be available to them, and that's why it was such a surprising move when they got Whit Merrifield because none of us knew whether he would be available. Obviously, he is. He's been vaccinated. He told us that he would be able to be with his team in Toronto when they got back here this week, and so. I think that that's one element of the storyline that we've sort of been like, okay, uh, again and again, we keep hearing the same thing. The other thing is obviously that the same rules exist for the U.S. I'm a Canadian citizen and to travel to the U.S., I have to prove that I'm vaccinated in order to travel there. And so a lot of players who are not American citizens have had to deal with that as well, right, to get into the U.S., for spring training at the start of the year, they probably had they probably had to prove they were vaccinated or go through other, I don't know what the rules exactly are in the US in terms of quarantine and all that kind of stuff. I'm more familiar with the Canadian rules, but it's also been sort of a uniquely American player thing where they've chosen maybe not to be vaccinated and then they haven't been able to come into Canada. And there's been like this storyline of like, well, I don't want Canada telling me what I can do. And we've also all had to be like, okay, but the U.S. has the same rules and you have to be vaccinated to enter the United States as well. It's not just a Canadian thing. So there's like that like hamster wheel of a storyline as well. And then there's also like the broader picture of like, sure, the Blue Jays are getting maybe some advantage in series to series scenarios if as you say like some of team's best reliever isn't showing up or their two best hitters aren't showing up like in a small sample size yes that helps the blue jays but also we're talking about a team that for a year and a half didn't play at their home stadium because of vaccination and covid19 restrictions and border rules so this is certainly a team that's lived through its own fair share of disadvantage so i think if there is some small small level of advantage it's sort of just like evening out the baseball karma universe or whatever you want to call it a little bit for the blue jays who played at a fairly major disadvantage for a season and a half and i actually have another whit merrifield question but let's stick with with canada for a bit i believe you're actually from toronto caitlin I am, yeah. But you went to college in London, Ontario, which is, I know this because I used to live in Detroit and I actually lived in Toronto for close to two years in the 1990s. London is halfway between Detroit and Toronto. Mm -hmm. So I've always been a bit curious whether it is completely Blue Jays territory or if there are actually a lot of Detroit Tiger fans there. No, there's definitely Detroit Tigers fans in London. It's an interesting sports city. It's a big hockey city as well. And I think you're, you'll also find a lot of Detroit Red Wings fans there, especially of the older generation. I think that they were more traditional Tigers fans because they had maybe been rooted in Tigers fandom longer and then Blue Jays came along. So I think a younger generation is probably more devoted to the Blue Jays and choosing that loyalty. But I think definitely like an older generation skews Tigers fans. And then it just sort of depends on like family loyalty. Sometimes kids will rebel against their parents and say, no, I'm going to cheer for another team like the Blue Jays or whatever. And then some some families are just loyal all the way through and decide to be Tigers fans. So you'll definitely see that honestly. And it's Windsor. I think Windsor probably skews in almost more Tigers fans because they're really close there. But you'll probably see somewhat of an even split it's it's funny my mom's family is from sarnia so my i have an aunt and she's kind of a perfect example of a person that sort of cheers for both you know she likes to she keeps an eye on the tigers 
And even when I was in Detroit earlier this year, you know, I got her a Tiger shirt because I know she's kind of a fan. And also, but she is also a Blue Jays fan. And she'll more so root for the Blue Jays, but definitely like keeps an eye on the Tigers. And if there's like a scenario in which it's like the Tigers are doing well, she might be like, oh, I'm a Tigers fan too, you know? So I think there's a lot of that as well. It's like kind of people will cheer for a little bit of both or they'll keep an eye on both. So it's definitely interesting that part of Southern, Southwestern Ontario, I guess. You get a blend of all types of fans there. That deep sigh, Caitlin, that we all heard just came from every Tiger fan who heard you say when the Tigers are doing well. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a while. (laughs) Yeah, let's jump to uh, Merrifield again. A lot of the Blue Jay fan listeners to this podcast are going to know what I'm referring to. People around the country may not. They will in Minnesota, certainly. Went Merrifield was ruled out at the plate and safe at the plate recently. What happened? And do you agree with the call? Yeah, I mean, that was their series finale against the Twins, and obviously it happened in extra innings. And initially, as you say, Witt was called out at the plate. The umpires on the field called him out, but then they went to replay review. The Blue Jays immediately wanted to challenge the call based on the blocking the plate rule or the Buster Posey rule, as it's kind of commonly referred to. And then it went to review and the call was overturned and it was ruled that Gary Sanchez was blocking the plate. And honestly, like, and I said this on my own podcast, Spinrate, I am not well-versed enough in this rule and I have not watched countless plays at the plate to know precisely if it was the right call or not. I can only speak to the fact that I understand why it's such a divisive decision because it's such a gray area type of rule. And so I understand like I understand both sides. I get why the Blue Jays were saying he was blocking the plate. I think Whit Merrifield played it really smartly in that I think he slid in such a way he kind of understood and he even said this to us in the media. Like he kind of noticed earlier in the series how Gary Sanchez set up at the plate for a potential play at the plate and kind of saw where he stood and kind of had this inkling like he's sort of in the way he's in the lane and so I think Whit Merrifield sort of understood if I slide a certain way or I if I approach it this way it's going to look more clear cut from the rule book standpoint that he was blocking the plate and so I think in that way you have to kind of tip your cap to the smart savvy base runner that Whit Merrifield proved that he would be And I think that he slid in such a way that it was easier for the replay official to call based on the particulars of the rule. But I also understand from the Twins' point of view that this is such a complicated rule that is not easy to call. And so sometimes when those things happen, a lot of times when a play happens and the umpires make the call on the plate and it's really dicey or whatever, then it doesn't get overturned. So I kind of understand why the twins were so shocked that it got overturned because it what it wasn't like super clear cut. I think you could kind of look at it both ways. And I think certainly people have looked at it both ways. And so, yeah, in terms of weighing in and if it's correct or not, I'm not going to do that because I 
admit that I just am not well versed enough in the particulars of catcher setup and all that kind of stuff. So I would just say that I completely understand why it has divided these fan bases and why it is such a complicated rule, because I think it is really tough to call correctly. No, fair enough. And while Merrifield did make what I guess you could call a smart play by sliding directly into the catcher Mm -hmm. at Fenway Park last night, Tuesday night, Ronald Acuna Jr., and maybe some some listeners have seen the highlights of this, made an absolutely fabulous instinctual slide where he went way to the inside and got the, uh, you know, the plate with his, his right hand. So right. there are two different ways to do it. Yeah. And that's the other thing I saw people say, well, Witt kind of could have gone around him and there was maybe a way in the back way where he kind of could, as you say, kind of like deke out of the way of the tag and maybe he could have made it but I think he instinctually decided I'm gonna go feet first because to him he probably saw that as he was running down the line he probably saw where Gary Sanchez was standing and was like hoping even if he doesn't get in if what you know if the ball and him are kind of getting there at the same time if he makes the side in such a way that he's directly going into where the catcher is potentially he could get the blocking the plate rule because as I said before he kind of had it in the back of his mind where Gary Sanchez usually sets up in those situations. Yeah, at the risk of sounding, Caitlin, like a conspiracy theorist, I kind of wonder had that been Yadier Molina instead of a a catcher with a bad defensive reputation, if maybe New York says, ah, no, we're going to stick with the call. I kind of wonder that too, honestly. Like, I'm sure you're not the only person thinking that is what I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Uh, One more thing before I let you go, and this is rules related as well. You should take listeners through a loss that Jordan Romero was charged with earlier in that same series. Yeah, so that was another... So the the thing with the twin series, we should say, was a really tightly contested series in the sense that there was kind of one blowout for either team, and then the two other games went to extra innings, and they were all really close. So the Blue Jays in that one had fallen behind and then they made a comeback and they'd sent it to extras by tying it on the ninth inning and then you had Jordan Romano coming out trying to keep the game tied because the Blue Jays hadn't scored in the top of the inning even though they had the opportunity and let me remember so Jordan got a strikeout but Danny Jansen dropped the ball and then trying to just make the out at first he kind of didn't get a good throw off where he was standing and the runner was kind of running and up the baseline. So he got a bad throw off and bounced off Vladdy's glove. So that runner was safe. The ghost runner advances to third on that play. So the next ball, Jordan Romano induces a ground out, fairly routine ground out to third base. And of the guys you want a ball hit to, Matt Chapman is a pretty good one. So Matt Chapman has a pretty clear play at the plate, but bounces the throw Danny Jansen can't make the play on that. And so they walk it off on that play. So yeah, it's a situation where Jordan got a strikeout, didn't even really allow a run because I think that was like a fielder's choice type of scoring opportunity. And yeah, he gets the loss, which (laughs) it's weird. The Blue Jays have, for as talented as a team they are, they have not been good in extra innings this year. And even since the ghost runner on second has started, I don't know exactly what their record is, but they have not been great in those situations. I believe they have a losing record since that rule has come into place. I don't know why, but that's just a weird thing about the Blue Jays lately. And if you were making official scoring decisions for Major League Baseball, do you think that Romero deserves a a loss? You know, any pitcher who, who retires every batter he faces should get the loss or should it be a team loss? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I've never really thought about that, to be honest. I know I don't really think very much about the scoring decisions. I just do what they, I just write down what they say. So that probably is one that shouldn't go on him considering he wasn't really factoring into that loss. It was the defense around him, but uh, Jordan Romano still doing fairly well in the stats department. I think he's still leading American League in saves or is right up there at the top. So I don't know. That's a good That's a good question, though. It maybe was a bit of an unfair scoring decision, but what are you going to do? They ended up getting the split in the series, so they were happy with that. No, it's the rule. I was just recently, as you were on the same show, I think at a different time slot with Blake Murphy on F90 The Fan a few days ago, and I brought up the Romero and also the fact that Brewers reliever Hobie Milner has, and I don't have the numbers in front of me now, I think he's up to 130-something uh, career appearances, and the only loss he has been charged with came in exactly the, the same way. Mm. Not exactly the same, but faced two batters, retired both of them, and got the loss. So MLB, right. uh, bad rule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Caitlin, we have gone over time, as I tend to do, so, you know, we'll close here and I will thank you for being a guest on Fangraphs Adia. Of course. Thank you for having me. And thanks everybody for listening. Hello, I'm Ben Clemens, fresh from a week of cryogenic sleep after finishing the trade value series and trade deadline. And I'm joined by Dan Zimborski, the co-host of the Untitled Dan and Ben podcast segment. How's it going, Dan? It's going well. It's the Untitled Dan and Ben Baseball-Related Podcast segment. Oh, that's a good point. It should be baseball-related because if not, it's an excuse for me to talk about lots of things like people breaking their wrists in a bike accident. Related is the key here. It's not a baseball podcast necessarily Baseball tangential. But uh, involves baseball. Baseball-like substance. In the vicinity of baseball. So uh, I guess we should start it off with what we would call, I guess, recapping the central landscapes in the wake of the trade deadline. And I know that you wrote about Tim Anderson speaking of just, you know, really bad beats. I mean, I, I don't know what else to call it. That's just a truly unfortunate turn of events for the White Sox after they did nothing at the trade deadline. But the AL Central looks like it's going to be tough for them now. Yeah, I mean, going into the season, I still stand by the projections that had them as the favorite. It hasn't worked out that way. Uh, and when you look at the White Sox right now, you don't say, hmm, I think that the problem with the White Sox is that it's too hard to get Josh Harrison, Larry Garcia in the same lineup at the same time. That would not be my list of problems for the White Sox. Maybe it's someone out there. Maybe maybe uh, Hawk Harrelson sitting at home hoping for that. But it's just it's just another thing that the team didn't need. Uh, Zips has Tim Anderson with like with like a whole win remaining. Uh, I think they lose most of that win, especially because I think it's going to be Garcia Harrison. And then you're talking a one win doesn't sound like a lot, but it is important in a three team, very close race. I guess when they say fortune favors the bold, the White Sox are the corollary to that. So I actually I found their situation kind of interesting at the deadline where their biggest issue. I mean, now Anderson is hurt. And so that is that is a whole separate problem. But their biggest issue wasn't really the the holes in the lineup. You know, we went into the season with those holes existing and knowing and like still projecting them to win the central <laughs> fairly comfortably. The issue is that all their stars have been bad or like a big chunk of them. Yohan Moncada has been essentially a replacement level hitter, which is I mean, just really 
he's really on this up and down kind of roller coaster. And I know that in 2020, people thought that uh, illness recovery might have been part of the story, but it's been two years and it just kind of seems like he may not be the consistent offensive performer we once thought he'd be. Yosemite Grandal, I mean, catchers always have kind of uncertain shelf lives, but he the, he's looked just bad this year. I don't think there's really any other way to put it. He has a 57 WRC+. plus. That's that's not high enough, Dan. No, it's not. But the, the thing is, the more holes you fill before the season and during the season, the more you're able to survive the other nasty surprises that will happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, not fixing second base before the season was, you know, a, a pretty clear error on their part. I, I think there's really no way around that. But given the spot they've landed in, it just feels to me like there's not enough they can uh, they can patch up at this point. It'd be one thing if Giolito was not like uh, scuffling so hard, but yeah. No, I mean, after the deadline, without... I think this is a team that if if they had the willingness... They are they would have benefited from there being an August waiver trade deadline because they can pick up kind of those fill in players. Even you can't pick up stars. You're not going to pick up Soto in one of those August month trades of, on, on waivers, of course. But sometimes you can get a player who you have to pay a little for to, to save a bad, cheap team, a million and a half or something. And they'd have a chance of doing that. But the miners are not deep. Yeah. And there's there are not any real street free agents that excite. You know, I mean, yeah, we don't really want Rob. I don't think that Robinson Cano is a good idea anymore. Right. I think that um that lack of a farm system is kind of is kind of what motivated me to think their trade deadline move was OK. It just like it didn't feel like they were really in it, given the, the struggles of the core of the team. And like, yeah, they could they could maybe capture the division. But it was this is not like a banner year for the White Sox and they're shoring up weaknesses to go to the playoffs. This is a this is a down year. If this is the level that these guys are going to play at, they've got issues. The problem that you run into is that this year is supposed to be like smack dab within their middle of their competitive window. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, there's it's not good when all of your good players play bad. <laughs> now, if let's let's say that Jerry Reinsdorf also had sold the team in in April. OK. On what date already would Tony LaRusso have been fired? The April. April. I can't imagine a modern owner coming in and saying, well, probably installing his own GM. So I guess that would take some time. Installing his own GM and the GM saying, yeah, like, give me that Tony La Russa experience. It's just, <laughs> it's not, it's just not believable. I know that people say, oh, La Russa just, you know, there's no way you can actually prove all of his decisions are wrong. That, That's not really you have that. to say that you've lost. It's not a stunning endorsement to say, well, you can't prove that everything he does is awful. Right. I know that uh I know that I've written a fair amount about just I mean baffling and honestly baffling even to Tony LaRusso from 10 years ago, intentional walks that LaRusso has been making. I went through and looked at all of the Tony LaRusso games that I could find game logs for and he'd never uh walked somebody after a first pitch foul ball. I tried to explain <laughs> it later. I I'm still confused by that. I mean, it's not like that one thing like was so damaging. Right. It, they're all small. It's just just yeah, you why? just question the sanity of the of like who would do that? Yeah, I remember like earlier this season, I wrote about a time where he somehow walked himself into using Liam, uh, Liam Hendricks like four times in four days after not using after using him in some like four run lead situations, and it's just like so many little things just add up, and it makes you wonder like like I don't it doesn't matter that much, but it matters. 
I mean, if Hendrix was actually significantly derailed by that in any way, then that was bigger than all of these silly intentional walk decisions we're talking about. It just, it's not good when you have to think about all the managerial decisions you've made because you go back and look at them and you're like, well, this is so far outside of conventional wisdom and there are no obvious reasons why you should break conventional wisdom for it. You know, it's not like he's a, he's adopted an opener. It's just like he's decided to use his closer with four run leads a lot. <laughs> well, that's okay. It seems bad. Now, LaRusso's other former team, or one of his other former teams, the Cardinals, have had a, a pretty solid post-deadline experience, let's just say. They've, they picked up two pictures at the cost of Bader down the stretch, and they, you know, they passed the Brewers, who did a bit of shuffling. It didn't really seem like it made the team better this year. Are we seeing the Cardinals' aggression pay off here? Aggression, I think, is maybe too kind to them. No, they didn't get two pictures, and they did trade a starting player who is a perennial gold glover. Yeah. So I would say that one of the Cardinals, like one of the things that has been long the case is that they're pretty happy to deal marginal pieces of the major league chart and prospects in the 10 to 20 range, and they never are willing to touch their top prospects at all. And in that sense, it's not surprising that they traded a peripheral reliever in Johan Oviedo and a mid-teens prospect, Malcolm Nunez, and a major leaguer in Harrison Bader, rather than touch their top prospects. That's how you end up not really being in play for giant trade chips. But, you know, it works for them. I mean, they, they do have the two leading MVP candidates on the roster, so it's yeah. not like it's it's all Colton Wong's. It is, it is true. Like, the thing that, one thing that made me a bit surprised by the Cardinals' lack of aggression in the Soto sweepstakes, and maybe they were aggressive and the Padres just offered them more or the Nats liked the Padres trade package more, is uh, one move that the Cardinals love to do is sign people who, for money reasons, don't demand a huge return in trade and are approaching free agency. I mean, Soto isn't that, obviously, but both Arnato and Goldschmidt, if you did like a surplus value calculator, and I'm sure Zips could have done this at the time, the Cardinals quote-unquote overpaid in those trades. But that's stupid because... There's only one Paul Goldschmidt and only one Nolan Arnauto, and the Cardinals are not good historically at developing those guys in their system. So getting them and then figuring out a way to retain them is just obviously good. I think that's uh, that's something I've been struggling for a way to write about for a while, and I've never really gotten comfortable with it. How do you value the fact that it is worth basically taking a, a loss in terms of the amount of money you pay for the wins you get to concentrate them? And teams seem to understand that but i don't i can't work out the math behind it now what what's surprising to me is after i said when i talked about when i described harrison bader as a print of gold glover uh a few minutes ago i did not remember he has only won one how is that possible uh he's been hurt a lot yeah that, but he's that hasn't but helped the, rafael primero got his dh gold glove uh, it just seems weird that he only has one so let's look up the centerfield gold gloves by year because I think that I think that some of it is you know the nonsense famous people get it. Some of it is that there's a bit of a playing time bias, and some of it is just yeah bad luck. Like Trent Grisham won in 2020. Okay, that was a that was the systems only year, right? I mean Bader got his only Gold Glove in the season he got the least playing time. Yeah, in 2020 I mean, he played 50 of 60 games and 138 games in 2018, 128 in 2019. He's he's on pace. 
Well, he's not going to now, obviously. So right. maybe he'll get 90 games. It depends when he gets back. I don't know. That was a, a complete tangent. I'll, I'll go back to the Cardinals. I think that they were kind of always doomed to lose out on Soto to the Padres because at their core, the Padres are gamblers right now. Yeah. The Cardinals <laughs> the, are not. The Cardinals are accountants. Yeah. If you've, if you've seen the movie Rounders, the Padres are Ed Norton and the Cardinals are John Turturro. Gosh, I put a Rounders reference in my trade value series, and I'm trying to remember. It was specifically, you can't lose, we don't put in the middle. And I can't remember who I wrote it about. But I think that the Cardinals are, by nature, conservative. I think that there's, like, little c conservative. There's no doubt about that. I think they're an underratedly good front office overall. Like, I think they have a, a good understanding of how their team works, and that they kind of build around that quite well. But I, I would think that like the very best front offices have a little more range. Like I wouldn't consider the Padres one of the best front offices either. They don't. Have, they also don't have range. They just have the one move. But I feel like the very good front offices can switch. You know, they they can do multiple things. They can be the Dodgers or they can be the Dodgers. And the Cardinals aren't. They just they're really good at the one thing they do. And hey, you know that's okay. But. I would have liked to see them. I thought the Quintana trade was just a masterpiece. I don't know why no one else was willing to give up more than that. Like, Quintana is just a valuable number three, number four starter, I think. And that was that was pretty cheap. And that makes a lot of sense for teams on the playoff hunt. I liked the Bader-Montgomery swap. I'd be curious to hear your opinion of it. I, I thought it was reasonable. I know some people on both sides don't like it. It's 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 kind of unusual because... It was a major league player, major league player deadline trade between two contending teams that yeah, could theoretically play each other. Position. Yeah, that's relatively unusual. But I, I, I think that the Cardinals are their priority is getting to the playoffs. Right. And I think having the depth in that rotation rather than Bader's hopeful comeback in September is the priority is it, it makes sense for them. I think it, I mean, it, it will hurt them. I think come playoff time, because then you're reliant on fewer pictures overall. And then the strength of your lineup becomes more important, but they just want to get there first for the yeah. Yankees. Their rotation depth isn't as important to them now because they're in the playoffs essentially. And now they're looking at maximizing their wins in the playoffs, which means that having a good fifth starter, good five starters, and a good four starters doesn't really have a ton of value. It has some value because crazy surprises happen. Right. But I think having a center fielder who who can play like Bader improves their lineup for the playoffs. And I also think in September they want to be not still playing Aaron Judger Judger Hicks in in, in center field. Yeah, I think the Yankees side of this trade is pretty obvious. I. I don't know, like, I know everyone says they're thin at pitching. They're not really that thin at pitching. They're thin at pitchers who you think performed for them this year. Like, I think Clark Schmidt's pretty good. Like, Severino's due back before the playoffs. I, I think this trade just generally makes sense as a way to kind of squeeze out a little bit more of their roster. Like, the outfield seems to me to be more of a problem at pitching for them. And for the Cardinals, the thing that I didn't like about it for the Cardinals is that I think they should have just traded for Tyler Maley. Like, why not try to trade prospects for a starter and keep your major league player. Like they have the issue of it's very hard for their prospects to make an impact in the majors right now because there are no weak spots. Like where, where are you going to put them on the roster? It, it's very tough. They're already running into this problem at the major league level. So it's just weird to me that you'd trade a guy who is a major league performer who look, ask the Cardinals if they could have Harrison Bader on his contract, they obviously would, right? He's, 
He's a valuable player. So trading someone like that who fits into what you're doing and like makes your outfield work better instead of giving up some prospect capital for a starter just seems weird to me. Like you can win the trade, quote unquote win, and still have it be worse than other trades you could have made. And given what starting pitching was going for that wasn't the very, very top tier at this deadline, I find it weird to trade away from your major league roster when you're headed, like when you said, when your goal is to make the playoffs, when you could have traded away from the minor league roster. I I, I think uh, part of it is I would expect, and I think that it was the case in Zips, that they prefer Jordan Montgomery simply over over Tyler Emily. Okay. I, I think that's, that's what comes into. I'm I'm slowly running both projections in St. Louis. Obviously, I ran Montgomery, uh, but Zipsy's St. Louis. I mean Montgomery as a as a basically a three win picture in St. Louis next year. It's interesting because St. Louis clearly covets ground ball pitchers. You know that that's what they do. They have a great infield. They teach great infield defense. They play great infield defense. Their stadium is cavernous. Like fly ball pitchers would do well there too. And they have, they won two outfield gold gloves last year. <laughs> Actually, Zips really likes uh, Tyler Emily in, in, in St. Louis. So it's it's definitely not a Zips thing, at least. But in Montgomery's case, I mean, he is a left-handed ground ball picture. Yeah. Uh, and the Cardinals, of course, have a terrific left side of the infield. Yeah, they have a terrific right side of the infield, too, in fairness. True. Yeah, I, I think that their moves were fine. And I know that they were one of the big winners in Zips' uh, look at how the playoff odds changed post-trade deadline. But I think that's mainly because the Brewers didn't understand the assignment and turned in a paper mache collage when they were supposed to turn in a term paper. Like That's a very, that is a very big misunderstanding. Yeah, they, they were not close. Like, when you're this close to the playoffs, and, I mean, you talk about the White Sox in terms of this being a key year for their core, the Brewers act in a very cost-constrained way they have two pitchers that are rapidly approaching free agency that form the real core of the team. This is not a year that you can joke around with. This is this is important. Like, I don't see how you can look at the Milwaukee system and think, ah, you know what, 2022, whatever, like, let's let's play to build long term success. The Brewers have never tanked in the David Stearns era. They they tried to do the shallow rebuild. And so I understand that they're trying to do these moves for now and the future. But this is not a year to sacrifice now. And I think it's at least arguable that they made themselves worse in 2022 at the trade deadline. I think they may be the only contender who actually made themselves worse, not just in relation to their closest competitors. And I really would have liked them to add another bet. Obviously, that wasn't in the forecast, but I think they could have upgraded on Andrew McCutcheon since they don't really seem to have that much interest anymore all of a sudden in Keston Hira, which which right. kind of intrigues me uh, because they seem to give him more of a chance when he was struggling than when he isn't. Yeah, that is true. They they kept calling him up for the minors when he couldn't hit at all last year. And he seemed, I don't know if he's actually figured something out or if it's a sample size thing, but, you know, he's not as bad and he can't seem to find space. I mean, he has a 135 WRC plus in the in the majors this year. Yeah, it is. It is 150 plate appearances and he's bad at being 400. True, but that kind of thing should say, hey, you know, yeah. he's hitting. Maybe we should see more of this if he's turned it around. But yeah, I think that. They might look at the 43% strikeout rate and just go, Bleh. but yeah, I'm with you. If you liked him enough to give him 200 plate appearances last year when he had that strikeout rate and also was uh, slugging 300, <laughs> like you should like him enough this year. Now, we do have to talk about Chris Sale and his magic bike ride. I've never really hurt myself that badly biking, and I don't actually know what happened to Chris Sale, but what the heck, man? Like, I bike around cities all the time, and... It just seems 
shocking to me that this could happen. <laughs> this is Jeff Kent-esque. It was described as he hit something going down a hill and flew off the bicycle. Yeah. Dan, I live in a city with hills. It's, a, it's something it's known for, in fact. And I don't see people hitting something and flying off their bicycles very often. Yeah, it's a, it's almost a cartoon result. It kind of is. Like, I'm picturing, <laughs> have you seen the meme of the guy putting the stick in his own uh, bike spokes? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very popular meme. Yeah, I'm kind of picturing that as him right now. Even he didn't fly off. He just kind of clump, fell over. Yeah. In the meme. I have caused problems with bicycle before. I wasn't injured, but not when I was 12, I was bike riding with, with my friends uh, to Kenilworth Mall in, in Towson. And uh, we were going down one of the side streets. And one of my shoelaces got kind of tangled in the bicycle. A classic, yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I don't tie my, I still don't tie my shoes very well. I'm still a child when it comes to that. But while I was preoccupied with kind of getting that loose i didn't think to stop the bike and get it loose i just kind of did it while i was riding i actually collided uh with my friend mike's neighbor's audi Ooh. and lopped off his side view mirror Ooh. that's probably also not as cheap to fix as it is now no that was a very exotic car at the time yeah, it was it was a nice Audi. So I so I'm 12 and I'm sitting here and I I I walk to the guy's door with his broken side view mirror, <laughs> which is an awkward moment at any age, I think. Oh yeah. But I was very apologetic, and he was actually not that mad. I think probably because I could have just biked off without anyone ever saying anything. Right, and you did the the nice thing. Yeah, and uh, I paid for it. By which I mean my grandfather gave me money to pay for it because <laughs> it was like $230 to repair or something because it's cool. an Audi. So I I, I, I wasn't hurt, though. Uh, now, I have torn a ligament in my wrist, tripping over a cat and getting my wrist kind of stuck in a railing as I fell down. That's some uh, that's some Clint Barmus injury stuff right there. Uh, I once cut open a my my. Uh, my thumb with a bagel, and I, well, while cutting a bagel, I cut my thumb. <laughs> I was going to say, sharp bagel. Yeah, it is a sharp bagel. <laughs> uh, and I, I said a loud cursor, and I kind of shook my hand, and I made a spray of blood go all over the kitchen. There was blood on the ceiling, blood on the fridge. And my mom came in, and she saw the ratio of blood to my injuries. Like, what did you do to your thumb? And it's like, I, I kind of shook my hand in shock. <laughs> I've done a lot of things. Uh, Have you ever done it in the midst of a playoff race? No, I've I was close to a golf mishap though. I actually never really got injured playing sports as a kid. I'm perfectly healthy doing that. Uh but playing golf, my my friend Phil's dad, another one of our friends hit Phil's dad in the head with a golf ball. He didn't yell for when he Ooh. made a very terrible shot. Ouch. So Phil's dad was sitting in the golf cart with me and his dad just says says Dan, get us to the clubhouse now and and like blood is just shooting out over him. It looked like like a fire hose. Uh, apparently, those those head wounds are pretty uh, are, are are very bloody. You got blood all over him, blood all over me, blood all over the car. It looked like a murder had happened. Jeez. Uh, so we we drive back to the course. We drive him to uh, Hanover Hospital when they got the bleeding to stop. He had a couple stitches. Uh, I drove home in my car, you know, covered in blood. Uh, I had to stop off to get gas, and it was in the middle of nowhere, so it was one of those stations you had to go in and actually pay. Oh, no. So I went to the gas station covered in blood. The The girl behind the counter looks at me just very suspiciously. Yeah, as you might imagine. 
She asked me if I was okay, and there's no real good answer you can give to that question. So I just said, no, it's okay. It's not my blood. (laughs) Uh, And then just kind of left. And I was never questioned for anything since there was no body. Uh, So that my family has a lot of history with injuries. So that's Chris Sale. Do, Do you have a favorite weird baseball injury? It's Clint Barmas, the frozen venison that he was gifted, that he wrenched his back, like, what, getting out of his truck or something? Maybe he slipped on it? I mean, I, I always like the Jeff Kent one. That That's classic. And Bumgarner getting hurt as a rodeo rider is classic. My, my personal favorite is Glen Allen Hill having a dream about spiders and waking up in a nightmare and falling through a glass table. I feel like there are more uh, glass injuries. Didn't Tyler Glasnow hurt himself in a similar way? Maybe I'm making that up. Well, his name is Glasnow. That's true. He's Mr. Glass now. But uh, there's been a lot of like stars that are just like us injuries. Yeah, the Clint Barmas one says he was lugging a package of deer meat he got from teammate Todd Helton. That one is near and dear to my heart. It's just, <laughs> I cannot say it strongly enough. He did not get hurt riding an ATV, Helton said. <laughs> uh, Klesko once pulled a muscle picking up a lunch tray that he dropped on the floor. Under- understandable, yeah. Oh, and what was the, what was the name of, that ast- of the Tigers reliever? Joel Zamaya, who injured himself playing Nintendo. Yeah, that, Guitar Hero was that's it? a classic. It didn't David Price uh, hurt himself by playing too much Fortnite? I'm trying to remember. Uh, it's, I don't remember that one, unfortunately. We have to look that up later. That was maybe not the exact. Yeah, it was. It was Guitar Hero that that Joe Zamaya was playing. Ah, uh, I mean, understandable. That's a tough injury game. Uh, this is. I have no smooth transition here. I, I lost the plot there, but I wanted to talk about Nelson Lemay, and we're kind of we got past it and have to come back, or maybe Lamet. Actually, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Lamet. So, Lamet. Like lament. That's why I said lament in the. It, it makes it. It makes a good pun. It seems that he's he's definitely one of my favorite pitchers. It looks like a French word. Denouement. <laughs> right. It really does. But I, I guess it's not. Uh, yeah. He's one of my favorite players. Like favorite pitchers. He's really fun to watch and analyze. And I'm guessing based on your article that you're generally a fan as well because he's he's just very interesting. Yeah. It was a pretty long piece for a waiver wire claim. Yeah. Exactly. But. <laughs> What, but what's always fascinated me about Lamette is that he's a pitcher that hasn't had a lot of experience pitching. Yeah, like very little. I mean, he did not debut professionally until twenty, age 21. And even then, he didn't even play that season. He didn't really get his first season as a professional until age 22. He was in the majors two years later. Which is pretty crazy. And unlike a lot of players in in his position... He wasn't a complete wreck control-wise, which he should have been. You know, a, a raw talent who throws really hard and has a slider, you'd expect, oh, he's he walks eight batters a game probably. Yeah. He is, but, well, he was with the Padres walking seven guys a game, so it was not a good season, right. let's just say. But I was I was pretty optimistic simply because he's come back from injury several, several times at this point, but he's still throwing hard. I think that there's at least a chance that with some coaching, he can kind of iron out the issues with his slider. Yeah. And my the point behind my piece was that his some of his numbers that you see correlated with terrible control aren't really there. He's he's still hitting the strike zone. Uh, he's right. still getting off to first good first pick strikes, and th- that that's a those are huge factors in players' walk rate. He's not someone who looks lost. He looks someone who doesn't have one of his pitches working, one of his two pitches, and can't close out anything. Yeah, that that is a bit of a problem. Yeah. But he did have two scoreless innings with the Rockies already. Two strikeouts and two scoreless innings, no walks. Yeah. I always do wonder, 
like the the parallel I draw to this actually is Matt Whistler. I don't know if you remember his brief time with the Giants, but ah, the the Matt Whistler era. Yeah, will there will be a Ken Burns documentary? Yeah, it it would be a short one. He was bad. He was. He was very bad, and he went to the Rays and was great. And if you look at what happened, his arm slot moved on a slider, and he just couldn't get back into the groove. And so he got he throws the sweeper slider, basically the. I don't know, the whirly, if you're a Yankees fan who has never heard anyone else refer to it. But, you know, a big right-to-left breaking slider. And he lost, like, five inches of movement on it when he was in the Giants, just out of nowhere, because he lost the arm slot and he wasn't getting the movement. He went to the Rays. They were like, hey, move your hand back up here, guy. And he did that, and then the slider was back. And, I mean, Lamette has such precise command over that pitch when he's right. Uh, I think you linked to this article I wrote a long time ago about his two sliders, and that's hard to do. I think Shane Bieber does a similar thing. He he can manipulate his various breaking balls really well. But if you can do that, it, it implies that you have pretty good just, like, feel for the pitch. It doesn't mean you can't lose it, but you have to like his his chances of getting it back because he's not just the guy who was gripping it and ripping it and he happened to find one grip that worked and nothing else did. He's clearly capable of manipulating the pitch differently. Yeah, it's not just two sliders. It's almost, as I described, he almost has like a dimmer switch that he could do like anything in between. Yeah, he's like, he just has really good like ability to manipulate the way that he, I guess, puts finger pressure on the ball on that pitch. It's unclear to me exactly how much of it is like finger pressure, how much of it is his wrist snap, but he clearly can change it. And it looks like he can change it, not at will, but like he's exerting his own influence on it. He's not one of those guys who's just, the slider does some random stuff and he doesn't have any. Yeah, he would he would throw a lot more sliders out of the strike zone if he was like that. He's actually at his career best for sliders in the strike zone. And I don't think that matches with someone who's completely lost the plot of the zo- of the strike zone. Yeah, I found the Brewers getting rid of him, frankly, kind of confusing. As I understand it, it was a 40-man issue, right? I guess it's money. It's it's the million dollars they save by having him claimed on waivers. I guess it's not a 40-man issue. They're not at 40. It's just very confusing. Especially because it was something good the Rockies did. I imagine that 20 teams put in a claim for him. Yeah, but the Rockies did. The Ro- Everyone else doing something smart does not phase the Rockies. <laughs> they They do not get pressured by the in crowd doing smart things. So the teams that could have beaten them to the claim are the Nationals, eh, eh, Pirates, the Cubs, and the Reds. Now, the question is why the Nats weren't interested, because they have Jake McGee on the team now. Do they really? Yeah, they just they just picked up Jake McGee. Was it on? It was either on waivers? I think it was on waivers. Oh, uh, yeah, but ironically, also from the Brewers. Yeah, well, I mean, I can understand, which means at some point they had a, that the Brewers had a decision between Lamette and McGee, and they said, well, let's just see what McGee has in store. So when was McGee's last game for the Brewers? August 6th. So he was continuing to pitch for the Brewers. So I guess when you put it that way, Dan, they probably would have, like, they could have claimed, wow, so they claimed McGee and not Lamette? I think it's because he's left, that McGee's left-handed, but that still seems a really bad reason to claim a pitcher. That also means, though, that the Brewers preferred McGee to Lamette. Which, what did Lamette do to these people? Right? Like, I remember, so my wife is, uh, she grew up in the Milwaukee suburbs, and she has a lot of friends from Milwaukee. Her mom still lives there, and we know a bunch of Wisconsinians who live in San Francisco. We we went to actually the the Josh Hader walk-off Grand Slam game here. That was a, 
Fun for me as a neutral fan, less fun for the Brewers fans in attendance. But they were all asking me, like, hey, you're a baseball analyst. Like, what do you think of this trade? And I said, well, if they think they can turn Lamette into a starter, I like it. <laughs> yeah. The Josh Hader trade. And as it turns out, they did not think that. If you look at David Stern's comments, it was literally just salary ballast because Taylor Rogers was making less than Josh Hader. I'd love the Orioles to get Lamette. Yeah, like, are we just having, like, a collective delusion that he's good because i still value him like a useful major league player i mean there's some pretty bad players that get claimed i mean again jake mcgee he got cy young votes maybe it'll maybe it'll come out that he's like an axe murderer who's being under investigation and that's why everyone was against him and and dumb ben and dan didn't know about this but i don't see a reason to not take a chance on that because all you risk is a little money. And really, it's not that much in the big picture. It's not that I've seen bigger money. wastes of money. It's just not that much money. I mean, the like, Rockies did it. Well, the Rockies, say what you want to about the Rockies. The Rockies are not spendthrifts. No, they're not. They just spend poorly. I think you have to give them credit for that. Like, they're, they don't run a team in a way that makes sense. And that costs them dearly in the long run. But it's an error of effort, not of laziness. And if you're going to be the Rockies or, say, the Reds, I'd rather be the Rockies. Now, in uh, a one final bit of news, the A's just designated Jed Lowry for assignment. You think he's done this time or is he going to go somewhere else, play poorly, yeah. and then finish it off again with the A's? Right. He always comes back to the A's like he's a, a secret agent that did his job and he returns to... And he always seems to get better when he returns. Yeah, he's he's he's... He's the James Bond of utility infielders. So here's why I'm going to say no. Because the way that it normally works, or that it has worked in his history, is that he looks pretty decent on the A's. And then he goes somewhere else and kind of isn't as good. That's not quite what happened in uh, Houston, but he had a good run with uh, with Oakland there in 2013 and 2014 before leaving. He had a good run after he came back, got bad. I don't see how any team can say, yeah, we need this. Like... It'd be one thing if his issue were anything other than a complete inability to impact the ball in a meaningful way, but that's that's a big problem. His maximum exit velocity is way down. His barrel rate is way down. His hard hit rate is way down. It's just like, this looks like a guy who just can't like hit the ball hard enough anymore, and I don't like it because I, I kind of enjoyed the Jed Lowry, like, wait, this guy's good era, but uh, I think it's over, sadly. Well, I will close out by just saying one kind of broad generalization. I really hope that the central races come down to what happened at the deadline. Like, Sandy Leone hits a home run against the Guardians to beat them. And kind of what happened to the Brewers happened, or like the Cardinals have, a, have an injury and don't have enough outfield depth. Something where a weakness that a team chose to have on purpose just for fun comes back to haunt them. Yeah, you want, you want Chekhov's bad deadline. Right, right. You put the bad deadline for the reason. The bad deadline in the first act has to be used in the third act. Exactly. And I, I feel like a lot of teams are increasingly understanding that if you're in a position to win now, you should. I think deadlines have been better for understanding that and that the teams who are excessively prospect hugging are not quite to the extent that they were maybe two or three years ago, where everyone was just really, really clutching every prospect for dear life. I really hope that the teams who are continuing to behave in that six-dimensional chess try to win for now and tomorrow and the year after that and the year after that and the year after that, including at every trade deadline, get a little bit punished for it. So the Central seems like the best place for that to happen. I don't see any other races really coming down to that, but here's hoping.
if the AL Central comes down to a three-way tie and we get a tiebreaker deciding who wins, what size table will our colleague Jay Jaffe flip over? <laughs> ah, he'll flip over a giant stack of the Cooperstown casebook that he has left at home just for this very reason. It'll be really heavy. I think he'd go to the library and flip over one of those really long tables they have at the library. Oh, the New York Public Library has extremely long tables. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really rough if Team Entropy finally gets its tie and it's... I guess they've had some. They had the year with the double tiebreaker game. But yeah, that would, that would be rough. I think it's unlikely because it's always unlikely. But it would be a real shame for it to happen this year. Uh, speaking of real shames, I think this is all the time we have. And it's also all the bad segues we have for the day. But Dan, let's do this again sometime soon. I've done some trade deadline wrapping up in various other places. But I feel like I enjoy it more talking it through with you because we both want to relate it to other non-baseball things. And that helps center my mind on what I think about the deadline. I love you too, man. <laughs> this has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Caitlin McGrath for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoy the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. If you'd like to keep up on all the things we have going on at Fangraphs, can I recommend the Fangraphs newsletter? It is the best way to stay tuned in to all of our coverage and analysis. Free to your inbox. Thank you for listening this week. We hope you have a good one, and we'll talk to you next time.